Amen. Why don't we open our Bible in 2 Corinthians 10? I open the Bible, 2 Corinthians 10. I've had a great time since I've been away. Great meetings last week and great youth service. Fantastic youth, young people and Shane preaching fantastically. Isn't that great to see young ones rising up like that? Man, that's what we want to see. Isn't that right? Rose, that was a pretty weak response. I hope that wasn't jealous old people being quiet. <laughs> Come on, you want to see young people. Rise, rise up. If, if you're in the 50-plus age bracket, it's crucial you be excited about the next generation rising up. Or you'll be missing totally what God would want you to do in this season, which would be part of encouraging them. You see, there's always something for us to do. But if we're focused on me, we miss what we're called to do. We have to see what God wants us to do in the different seasons of our life and then embrace that. And uh, so if you're 50 plus, there are two things, that, at least two things you need to be aware of. One is within the next uh, decade, there's going to be a huge increase of people in that age group, all needing Christ. And so there's a huge harvest field in Hawke's Bay emerging in this next five years to 10 years of people over 50 needing to be one to Christ. Who will reach them? Will it be you? Say, will it be you? So you've got to think that one through. Will it be you? If it isn't you, then God has to raise up someone who will stand in the place you were called to fill. Think about it. See, and the second thing is that God's wanting to uh, cause a young generation to emerge that can begin to pick up the baton of ministry and the baton of leadership, begin to emerge and become a very strong voice. And we have to be a part of helping that happen. And see, we have to be a part of that. Why? Because in this coming decade, Probably about 50 plus percent of the whole earth will be people who are under the age of 20. And so it's a real need uh, for us uh, individually and corporately to see where we're positioned in life and to fully embrace the part we have to play in it. We'll talk more on that a little bit later as we go through the year and the things God. But I want to just carry on and just do one more message on the wilderness. Then I want to get out of that wilderness. My goodness, my goodness, I want to get out of that wilderness. But anyway, it was a season of growing. So just going to give hopefully my last message on the wilderness wisdom about fighting a, fighting a good fight, fighting the good fight. So let's just read here, first of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. Verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, that means we're in a physical body, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't struggle or fight with people. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or human, but they are mighty through God. Mighty through God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing exalting itself against the knowledge of God, bringing to captivity every thought into obedience of Christ. Every believer, whether you like it or not, is engaged in a spiritual conflict. There are no exceptions. We, if you want to be, have the absence of conflict, then you need to die and go to heaven. It's the only place I know without conflict. But we're in the earth, and the earth is a war zone. The earth is a spiritual battle zone. You see it everywhere you read the papers, no matter where you look, you can't escape that we are in a battle zone. And the battle zone is between the kingdom of darkness, which controls and rules through the thoughts and the behaviors and the attitudes and, and sin patterns and people, and the kingdom of God, which God wants to expand to bring hope and light and life into our community. And his agent for doing that is the church of Jesus Christ. 
So for us to advance the kingdom, it requires we understand there is a fight that we fight. And there are no exceptions. You're either in the fight and winning, or you're in the fight and beaten up. If you're beaten up, then you need to come up the front, get healed, get delivered, start to get discipline in your life, start to grow in your Christian faith, start to get foundational uh, patterns of living established, and then we're going to win. Because God has called us to win, not to lose. There's no such thing as losing in the kingdom of God. God has never lost a battle yet, but we lose them. And we lose them when we lose sight of God and when other things control our life. So there is a battle, and it's not a battle against something you see. A fight and struggle is not with people. We think it's with people. It is never with people. People were called to love and reach out to, show the loving kindness of God. But there is a spirit world that manipulates, controls the environment, influences people, and also influences you. So the battlefield is a spiritual battlefield, and the place it's fought out is primarily in your soul. Your soul is the place this battle or this fight of faith takes place. And notice what the Bible calls it. It says, it's a fight of faith. In other words, the key thing is, what do you believe? What do you believe in your heart to be true? About your circumstances, about people, about God, about finance, about the feelings you have, about the thoughts you have. What do you believe? It is a fight about what you believe. And the only thing that can move the hand of God is that we are in faith, that we are agreeing with God about what God says. We take His side in life, and we begin to learn how to live and move by faith. You have to understand, because you have a need does not mean God will meet it. He knows the need. He looks for faith. And faith can be developed and cultivated. Faith has an evidence in our life. So when you're operating and living by faith, it is evident. It's evident in how your attitude is. It's evident in how you think. It's evident in what you say. If unbelief is in our life, it's evident by complaints. Complaints are the evidence that my heart is responding to unbelief, and I have a wrong perspective on life. The Bible says, everything give thanks. Oh, that can't be true. How could I give thanks and everything? Because I know that God is making everything work together for my good. So giving thanks in the midst of difficulty is an act of faith and an act of warfare. Complaining is an act of belief. Negative speaking, pessimism, critical thinking, judging, all of those are the, the actions or the outworkings of a heart that is not in a place of faith with God. And so in this next season, I was really thrilled. Just, just I picked up what uh, Bryden spoke. And I don't know how many of you picked up. He was talking about just in the finance area. But he said it's faith. And we're in a season of faith, of actually stirring faith in our lives. So we need to be fired in faith. Amen. God is for us. Notice it says the weapon. So we're not powerless. You've got something you can do. Just got to do something with it. The weapons of our warfare. There is a conflict. It is your warfare. And here's something good about your warfare. One is, God has never failed in a battle yet, so He'll help you. The second thing is, that it's your battle, not mine. So I hope you're winning it. You know, one of the things is, you can actually tell when people arrive in church whether they're winning. You can tell when you shake hands with someone whether they're winning. It's all over their face. 
and in their spirit and in the atmosphere that they carry? A winning attitude or a defeated attitude? And so when we come to praise the Lord, of course, some days poor old song leader has to get into perspiration and, you know, sweat and just about exhaust themselves trying to encourage people to respond to God. But you see, the Bible tells us to give a sacrifice of praise. So if it's not going well, then give them a sacrifice. Costly only when it's not going well. That's when it's a real sacrifice. If it's going well for you, easy to praise the Lord. It's not a sacrifice then, is it? Okay, let's move on. So what we want to do is we're going to go back and we're going to look because when God took people out of Egypt, he hadn't mind them going into a land of promise. And so he took them through a few situations where they experienced lack. Now, if you're experiencing lack, that's okay. The key thing is how will you respond? Everyone has lack at times. And we all have lack at times. And there's times when you go through and all your resources are less than the challenges you face. And that's life. And it happens seasonally, you have those pressures. I, I look around the world, looks like it's happening all over the world. Euro used to be strong, and now look at it. They're all talking about pulling in the belt and starting to cut back and having to stop this spending. So when you're going through lack, it is the time to reach out to God and to ensure that you're in a place of faith. You do what you can do and then declare what's going to happen in your future and call it into being. Got to operate in a faith way. Okay then, so we're going to look into this, uh, into this Old Testament. I want you to see the first battle, because God actually let them go into a battle. And the battle, because it's the first one, it means it's a significant one. It forms a foundation for understanding how all battles will be fought. So we're going to look in Gen- uh, Exodus chapter 17, and in verse 8 through to verse 16. So let's just read it right now. And uh, we can't lose the battle. We can't lose the battle unless we give up faith in God. If you give up faith in God, well, well, you can't win, can you? So now Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now Rephidim was the place where God had provided an abundance of water. In fact, they had so much water gushed out, formed a great river. So it was a great place, Rephidim. And, uh, but there at that same place, which was a great place of blessing, now became a place of conflict. So the very place that had been a place of blessing for them now was a place of huge conflict. And they had to face it. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Fight. Don't roll over. Fight. Don't pray. They won't go away. Fight them. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up the top of the hill. Oh, nice for them up on the top of the hill, isn't it? And so it was, <laughs> not down there fighting the battle, you know. Top of the hill, I suppose, if they're going to hurl arrows, that's who they hurl the ones on the hill will be the ones to spot. So when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands became heavy, got tired. And so they took a stone to put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on either side, and the other on the other side, They held it up because they were smart. They noticed something. They noticed when his hands were up, we're winning. When his hands are down, we're losing. What does that mean? People are losing their lives, getting cut and arms slashed and legs slashed and limbs being lashed off. So it's a good idea to help this fellow hold his arms up. There's something about holding his arms up that works. And so, when it, and so Moses' hands became heavy. So they sported his hands, one on the other side, and one on the other side, and hands were steady till they're going down to the sun. So it was all day this battle was fought. It wasn't a short battle. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. It was good, a sword, edge of the sword. 
you know. And the Lord said to Moses, write this from memorial. Isn't it interesting? So this is the first battle, which means it's significant. There's something to learn in it. Secondly is, God wanted them not to forget it. So he said, write it down. I want you to write it down, record it. I don't want you to forget this. Write it for memorial in a book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. And I will utterly block out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. So he said, this battle is not over yet. You've won round one. But this is going to be ongoing. He says, but don't you worry, because I'm going to clean it up, and you're going to have a total victory, and there'll be no trace of Amalek left. How about that? That's a good promise from God, isn't it? So maybe you're just on round one of your fight. Don't worry. God says he's going to clean it up for you if you'll just stick with the battle, eh? And learn from the, learn from, learn the strategy. Okay then. So, so they did that. So, and, then he, and then he said, um, he said the Lord, Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. And he said, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we're going to just have a look at the battle because, one, it's the first one, and that's always significant in the Bible. Everything that's first is very significant. Second one is because God said he's going to want them to remember it, not forget it. Because God doesn't forget stuff. He wants them specifically to remember. So there's some keys in here. I'll get to the keys shortly, but I want you to understand the battle. Because if you don't understand the battle and what actually they were up against, it's a little difficult to understand why it's so important to follow the strategy. So in this passage, there is a strategy given for warfare. It's divine strategy. And, and so that's why it's important. And so when you face battles and face pressures, there is a divine strategy to follow to ensure success. And we want to succeed. We want to win in the battles we face. No matter what our battles are worth, we want to succeed in them. So I want to just talk firstly a little bit. Spend a little bit of time so we just understand Amalek. And you just have a little understanding of where they come from, what they were all up about. Now, in Genesis 36, verses 10 through to 12, it tells us that Amalek was a descendant of Esau. In fact, he was Esau's grandson. Now, why is that important, his grandson? Because uh, in the Bible, generations are connected. And so, therefore, where someone originates from tells you the DNA, tells you the nature of that person, where they've come from. And so he descended, or he was the grandson, uh, by a concubine. So it's a moral relationship of someone who's seeking to gain influence by being connected into the family of Esau. And uh, so there's immorality in the background. There's uh, agendas to try and gain influence, not through a right marriage, but through just being a concubine, uh, trying to get in on Esau's family. Now, why is this? What was what's so significant about Esau? Well, there's interesting things about Esau. The thing is that Esau, Esau was the firstborn son. So Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Esau. Now, of course, immediately you think, oh, that's not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. No, but it should have been Esau. You see, Esau made bad choices. And this is what he showed. Esau did not value spiritual inheritance. He did not value, he did not understand or get the importance of blessing flowing down from one generation to another. He did not understand the significance of the blessing on Abraham being a generational blessing. He did not understand fully the power of that blessing that came by being connected to Abraham. In Abraham, I'll bless the nations of the earth. I will bless you and you'll become a blessing. You'll be blessed you financially, bless you in your marriage, bless you in your family, bless you in your relationships, bless you in your work. I will bless you. And Abraham was blessed. He was a multimillionaire, very rich man. See, Isaac also was a very rich man. 
So it should have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. However, Esau despised or did not see the significance of spiritual values. He was a very worldly man, man of the earth, and so he valued just meeting his immediate needs. He was more interested in just having a good time or filling up. And so the Bible calls him in Hebrews 11 a profane man. That word profane means literally to open up or to create a door of opportunity for something to come in. It's the same word used when the Bible says, don't give a place to the devil. So, uh, so this man Esau, did not, he didn't place value on spiritual blessing and the flow of spiritual blessing down a family line. Didn't place any value on it at all. In fact, actually what he did do was he traded his blessing for a meal. I won't get into the issue of trading, but what he did was he made an exchange. He exchanged something that was worth millions to him for one meal. He compromised, in other words, and, and traded away what God intended or he could have had. The Bible says, uh, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. Now, Jacob wasn't exactly a, a very honest man. In fact, he was a very manipulative and, and he lied, deceived at all kinds of things. Nevertheless, he had this that was good, and this is what God looked at. See, we look at the lying and cheating and deceiving, manipulating, all that kind of thing. I think, well, man, what a guy. You know, but, but God looked at him and saw, here's a man who has true values, eternal values. So Jacob was a man who loved the blessing God. So, so this descendant of Esau. So the whole thing about Esau was that, one, he despised the blessing, and then he hated Jacob when he got it. And so the roots of this Amalek is this. It's about despising and holding of no place or value your spiritual inheritance in Christ, trading it away for something that will just get you by today, and having resentment against those who walk in that blessing. Hatred, actually. Hatred's manifest by accusations, judgments, backbiting, all that kind of stuff there. So that's the spirit behind it. So what does Amalek actually mean? That's its source and its origin. It means to, to dwell in a valley, but it means actually this. It comes from a word. I looked up, I looked up the, Hebrew meaning, the Hebrew meaning, so I just tried a different source. I found it really quite interesting what it means. It means literally this. It means to toil, and it's combined with another word meaning to remove spirit life. So this is what Amalek means, to remove or empty out your spiritual life through seasons when you're under pressure, where it's difficult and you're struggling. So Amalek then is a demonic power that comes to steal away your spiritual life, to steal away the blessing, to steal away your life with God. And he comes at times when you are going through struggles, difficulties, misunderstandings, pressures, and you're feeling weary and toiling and straining a bit. Does that sound familiar? See, sound familiar? Okay, then. So that's what it means. To lose your spirit life, the life of God, the vital relationship with God, the dynamic expression of life that God's called you to through a season of toil and difficulty and pressure. That's what it means. So what is the nature of it? They were nomads. They, were, they never settled anywhere. So they were like Cain. Cain was cursed. They never settled anywhere. Many Christians never settle anywhere. You can't ever be productive if you don't settle. And so they were nomads. They, they had no commitment, no roots. They had no place they were planted. They built no lasting relationships. They just wandered. You can't be fruitful, productive, or have great spiritual inheritance unless we're planted, form relationships, become committed somewhere. 
And wherever it is may not be perfect, certainly won't be, because we're there. But however, uh, we need to be planted somewhere. We need to build relationships. So church is not just about a big body of people gathering like this. It's about actually the connecting and forming relationships. If we don't form relationships, then we'll never really come into our full inheritance. We can't because Christianity is never about walking alone. It's about a body. And most of the promises God made are to his body. And we because we're Western in thinking, we're very individual in thinking, so we just take it all for ourselves and don't worry about you, mate. But actually it doesn't work like that because there are so many scriptures that talk about our need to consider one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, love one another. So Christianity is about a community of people experiencing God together. Relationships are vital. People feel lonely, and then they become nomadic. They become like Amalek, wandering around from this place to that place. But the, the real problem is actually your, your difficulty in forming relationships, open relationships, where we can talk and enter and engage one another and share our struggles and have people pray for us. You know, that's the kind of Christian community that God is building. That's the church He's building where we can be in a small group, we can share our heart, and people will stand with us through our troubles and difficulties. So Amalek comes to steal away all of that. So this spirit would come to try and <clears throat> stop you forming any relationships and to end up hating people you should be loving. So God calls us to love one another and to love the community, to love the people who are unsaved. Why? Because He does. Not to judge or find fault, but to love and engage and bring the life of Christ to them. I had an interesting experience last week. Quite interesting, really. I had a guy who was a Buddhist. And uh, <clears throat> he was, uh, I won't describe him in a way that could be unknown by anyone, but he had been in uh, politics. He was in a very high position in politics. And now he was going through some very, very difficult season of litigation and all kinds of accusations were against him. And so I was asked if I could counsel him. And uh, I sat down, and, and so he got talking a little bit about the problems he was having or whatever. And then suddenly the Lord just opened up to me to understand, one, that exactly what the nature of the problems were, and two, that I didn't need to lead him to Christ for God to bless him. And so I just shared with him. I said, the Lord's showing me this is what your problems are. And he, and he began to weep and weep and weep and weep. And I shared with him. And then I said, now I'm going to pray. And we just prayed and rebuked the things and prayed for the peace of God to come into his life. And the guy, you mean, he looked transformed afterwards. Totally, totally transformed. Did I lead him to Christ? No, not at that time. But he's got relationships there. He will eventually come to Christ, no doubt about it. But there's no one thing you could see was he walked away having had an experience of God that was good. And so here it is, a Buddhist serving some other God, yet God was good to him. So he walks away, God was good to me. Sometimes, this is what we do. We mentally judge people. <clears throat> You're not a Christian. God can't bless you. I've got to lead you to Christ before God can bless you. It doesn't work like that. God's good to the just and the unjust. And so many times the best miracles happen for unsaved people because <laughs> God is so good. We just need reminding you so good. Isn't that great? God is good. Tell someone God is good. Okay then. So. Now, the interesting thing about these uh, people is that they, they were not in a territorial battle. I'm not trying to steal someone's battle. They just hated Israel. No cause, just hated them. They were totally against them. In fact, when you look down the Bible, Haman, who, who had a plot to get rid of all Jews, he was one of these guys. He was a descendant of the Amaleks. And uh, you look down to uh, Herod, who killed all the children. He also was a descendant of these Amaleks. 
So everywhere you see this Amalek spirit, it hates God's blessed people. So it tries to come in all kinds of ways to destroy God's people or to put them under such labor and toil they give up their spirit life and they're no longer walking in blessing. And you've got to keep your spirit life. got to keep it in a place of battle. We've got to fight this fight and with it so we walk in life no matter what we're facing, no matter what struggle you have. God wants you to walk through with peace and joy and life. And you can do it. You can do it. You can do it if you choose to. And uh, that's wonderful. So what else do we find? Here, reading Deuteronomy 25, you find the strategy. So how did Amalek attack? Well, it's helpful to know how he did it. So it's interesting how he's recorded it all. Write it all down so that no one forgets. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, Moses says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you are coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way, attacked your stragglers, or the people at the rear, and all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and you didn't fear the Lord. It shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies. In the land the Lord God is giving you to possess his inheritance, blot out remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. So God's quite important. Tell him, don't forget. Listen, these guys, they've got to go. Anything that comes against your inheritance, your blessing, the vision God's given you, it's got to be dealt with. God has put vision in your heart, a destiny in your heart, something in your heart. Believe me, this is what Amalek comes through. Steal your destiny. Steal your vision. Steal your hope. Steal your dreams. Why? Getting out of the realm of the Spirit, getting into just caught up naturally, trying to just live a good life and get by. God wants us to have a, a strong life, eh? powerful life in the Holy Ghost inside. Eh? So what did they do? They came up and they attacked. Now, it's interesting. They come up unexpected. They come up from behind. They didn't sort of line up like a normal battle was. You, you declared war. You stood out the front. And this one lined up here and this one lined up here. And they stared one another down and shouted and argued and whatever. Like did the harker to one another and that kind of stuff. And then they took one another on. It was always like that. But this, this group were different. They just sneaked up behind when no one's suspecting. So the nature of Amalek, it's a sneak attack. It's a terrorist attack. comes up on you when you're not aware of it. Notice where it came, the rear ranks. The rear ranks were the people furthest away from leadership that had the most distance relationally. And we can be separated in all kinds of ways from one another, but we can lag behind. We can have all kinds of struggles. See, offense will make you tired and weary. Offenses. If you harbor offenses, you get tired and weary, and you'll struggle a bit spiritually. Okay? See, uh, distrust will cause you to straggle. Uh, doubts will cause you to straggle. Negative thinking will cause you to straggle, to straggle a fair bit. You, just go, you, you lag behind. You, you can't make movement when you're, you know. See, the stragglers were the ones who were, lo- were lagging behind, so they were sort of slowed down and burdened away. And so, in, in a sense, what happened was they were sort of lagging back, and the enemy whipping and take them all out. So that would probably be the elderly and the children, a woman. They just kill them mercilessly, take all the goods. They were just plundering what they had. They were plundering. What they wanted was the blessing. Or steal it away. Take the life, steal the blessing. So, the, so people who struggle with loss of strength, loss of vision, you start to lose your vision, you'll struggle. You lose momentum in your life. You don't have a dream to hold in your heart. We lose momentum. We haven't got something we're looking towards or moving towards. As that goes further out, we just straggle back. We begin to slow down in our Christian life. They were tired. They were weak, you know, and they, perhaps they had uh, the word they're tired means to be uh, uh, crushed or they actually had wounds or difficulties or challenges because of their journey. Now, all of us at times have crushing blows come against us. I'm no exception. Uh, we have times when 
blows come against us which crush you in your spirit or hit your soul and affect your soul. And so it slows you down. When you slow down like that, that's when the enemy comes to pick you off. That's the nature of this thing. And so when we, we get hit or knocked or whatever, and we begin to slow down in our spiritual life, slow down, slow down and begin to lose our vision, get a bit fuzzy and whatever, or get offended or get hurt or don't know what God's doing or feel a bit lost and, and everything. When that happens, that's when this enemy comes to steal out and take your life, take your spirit life and get you stop praying, stop being in your word, stop fellowshipping, stop connecting, stop giving, just stop doing the things that will gender spirit life. So one of the things I think in the, in the coming season, I feel God just been stirring me that we get the, the basic disciplines going back, the foundational things we need to be doing to see that we're established in them. So if you haven't got a regular prayer life, uh, you'll be lagging behind. If you haven't got time in the Word, you'll lag behind. Uh, if we're not fellowship and connecting, we'll lag behind. There are many things that, we can, that are basic disciplines. If we don't do them, then we begin to lag behind and get weary, you know, just worn out and tired. So what was the impact? Now, the impact was horrendous. And if you want to see a little bit more about Amalek and how it operates, go look in the story of Saul. I won't go into there. I'd rather just finish and give you the strategy for winning. Ah, the strategy for winning. Let's go and have a look back into Exodus 17. Now, Moses said to Joshua, notice there's a clear direction given. Choose some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God. So Joshua did as Moses said. So here's the first thing, right positioning. Everyone had to be positioned right. Moses needed to be on the mountain, on the hill, holding up the rod of God. He needed those around him who would support him. He needed someone in the battlefield who would lead the armies. He needed people to be aligned in the army so they could fight and engage the enemy. In other words, everyone had to be in their right place. One of the key things to getting victory in spiritual conflict is to be positioned right. You have to be positioned right. The Bible tells us God sets members in the body as it pleases them. In other words, He puts us into a body of people, and He has a place for us to fit. He has a, a, a part of the church to fit into. Sometimes we don't find it so easily, but there's a place for you. There's a place for you in the body. Then there's a positioning spiritually in your relationship with God. You know, we were singing, we walk in the freedom Christ has won. So I need to be positioned in my walk with God, so I am standing boldly, confidently, no guilt, no shame, standing in the presence of God, able to draw on His resources and speak on His behalf as an ambassador, as a king into the earth. King, king uh, Saul had a destiny, a dream, a vision, an anointing, a call of God to be a king in the earth, just like you and I have an area we're called to be king to bring the life of God into. But this is what happened to him. He, had, he was called to go up against Amalek, but he compromised, lost the battle against Amalek, and lost his positioning. Very, very important, your positioning. I'll, I'll go into that on another session, but we need to know where and how God has placed us. If you're the husband, if you're a husband, God has called you to be spiritual head, to stand up in a place of prayer and responsibility in the home. We've got a leadership role. God calls to stand up and be positioned near Him, hearing Him, following His directions. So positioning is everything. Positioning is one about our spiritual positioning, our relationship with God. Two, it's about our connection with other people and where we fit. If you try and get somewhere you're not supposed to be, you'll find yourself out of God's protection. You can't win the battle. Very important to be positioned right. 
positioning. Interesting, think about this. God made a place or position for Adam before he made Adam. Think about that. He made a place for him, and he, made a, he got, had an assignment for him. So before Adam was created, God already had a place for him prepared and a job for him prepared. Think about that. So the man had to come into the place God had for him in order to fulfill the assignment God had for him. That's why it's so important for you to know what God has called you to do and to be and where he's positioned you to be, who he's positioned you to fulfill that with. Very, very important. Very important. And then, so our assignment is what God called us to do. Our positioning is who he's called us to connect with and where in order it might be fulfilled. And let me tell you this, the devil do everything he can to get you out of positioning. If you're out of positioning, you can't fulfill your assignment. You think about this, when Adam sinned, he was then taken out of his position. He lost his position spiritually and physically. He was removed. Now, I have seen many people over years see their whole family spiritually destroyed because the position God had for them and the place God had for them, they actually got offended or got something went wrong and they couldn't handle it or didn't handle it or whatever, and they withdrew with offense and then were so wounded, it actually it, it cost their whole family their spiritual inheritance. I've seen it countless times. Positioning is everything. You know, I, I've had many offers to go to different places. I have them currently there. There's, there's like offers to go do this, do that, whatever. Here's the thing I've, 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 I've realized a long time ago. The only great place to be is where God called you to be. That's the place of his will. It's the place of his prosperity. It's the place of his blessing. It's the place of your destiny. You can't guarantee if you go outside that, you'll be able to ever do what you think you could do. I remember seeing uh, knowing a pastor, I have to be careful not to identify him, but who had a very good church going in New Zealand, went to Australia thinking all things would be big in Australia. And, and now I look, he has not got, he had a church, was very big for its hour and time. And now he's got nothing, almost nothing. It's not, he's the same guy trying the same things, but it's just not working for him. He's not in the right place, not in the right positioning. So positioning alignment is the second thing. You notice they're all united. They have one thing in mind. They were united around a common purpose, a common vision, a common goal. And, you know, Jesus has made that clear for us. Our common vision, purpose, and goal, you can put it all kinds of words. In the end of the day, it always comes down, it's to go into the community and change it. Everything else, Jesus, Jesus wrote it down so we wouldn't get it wrong. I like the fact he wrote it down. Go! Make disciples. So, well, I'm not that. I'm not called to do that. You could argue with the Bible or scratch that bit out of your Bible or do something with it, but don't just leave it there because Jesus gave every one of us a mandate to enter the community to influence it. There's no way around it. And we can have great meetings and have great conferences and do all this kind of thing, but at the end, if it doesn't overflow to the community, we miss the number one thing. Just good thought of it, eh? Aligned. <laughs> nice to be aligned, isn't it, eh? So, <laughs> So, so that means every person who comes who's a visitor, will you reach out to them? Why? Because you're aligned with our goal of gathering up people to Christ. So wherever you go, you're reaching people to show the friendship of God to them. Why? Because that's what we're here for. It's what we're here to do. That people in your sphere or Metron, you're reaching out and doing something actively to reach them. You say, well, I'm, I do car park or I do prayer or I do administration. Nonsense. That's nonsense. That's just a specific function. We're all called to the big purpose, which is people. It's always about people. It's always about people. It's always about people. 
And the moment you forget it's about people, you've missed the, por- you've missed the purpose. You're not aligned. Okay, so God will be working on us to get his position right and align right and focus right in this next uh, in this coming season. It's going to be exciting, and uh, it'll be good. It'll be good. Hey, here's the next one. Here's a here's a good one now. And so you notice that Moses held up the rod of God. That is a picture of persevering prayer. He didn't just hold it up and he had the victory. It was nice because he held it up one day there, and and the the waters opened up, and then he and the waters closed. It was nice to just do. Like that. Wouldn't it be nice to stand there and go whoosh and get rid of all the enemy? Didn't work that way. Had to remain in a place of passionate, persevering prayer, upholding the authority of God, his hands lifted to heaven, lifted to the throne of God from where his power and his source comes. Listen, if we don't connect with heaven, if we don't connect with God, if we haven't got strong prayer coming out of an engagement with God, you can't win the battle. If you lose in prayer, you lose it altogether. You haven't got what it takes. Here's the thing. For the church to change a community, you have to have what it takes on the inside that the community doesn't change you. For most Christians, the community changes them. We think, talk, act, and behave just like the community does. Why? Because we haven't got enough inside us. And the inside us part is the discipleship, the growing in the basic disciplines, basics, walking with God, the the routine stuff that keeps you strong and alive and in God. So you can be like a Daniel. When Daniel went into the world of Babylon, Daniel was over all the magicians. I nearly got it right. This is a hard one to handle. Think about this. That Daniel was over all the occult practitioners. That was his position in the world. Because we love to think of Daniel being a nice person and a man of God, but how do you be a man of God and be over all the occult practitioners? That's your cell group. I've got all the occult practitioners, and they're all still into it. And I'm supposed to be in charge of them. Well, think about that. And you think your job's too hard. Go back and have another read of it. That he had such a presence and life of God in him. Spirit life. The life and presence of God. He rose to the top. Why was he, why was he over all the occult practitioners? Because what he had from God was better than them. He had more wisdom, more prophetic insight, more words and knowledge, more revelation. He had more than any of them. Shame the church doesn't have that these days. It has to come back to what we need to come back to. See, so we can actually have influence that way. That was a smart boy, that one. And so he would have had to all dress up and wear eye makeup and all kinds of stuff to live in Babylon in those days. You want to read the history of what it was like there. He would have had face painted and, and all kinds of things and eyes and rings and stuff like that. He looked quite bad. He's over the practitioners. I think if we saw Daniel today, if you had a chance to step into time and saw him, you'd write him off. Doesn't fit what we think of as a man of God. Doesn't look right, eh? Your cell group's all the occult practitioners. I can't. Now, come on now. And you're leading them? Ain't you tell them to turn or burn? No, 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 no. That wasn't it. He actually showed he had better than them. I think he probably won them all to the Lord. You, how about this? When the king was going to kill them all, he said, give me a chance. I want to save them all. Well, think about it. Think about it. Anyway, that's just an aside. So, persistent prayer. Passion, fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man releases great power. James 5, 16. 
Luke 18, 1. Praying without ceasing. Don't, don't give up. Don't quit. Men ought always to pray and not get weak. You hear that one? Actually, I like the way Jesus said it. Men ought always to pray and not quit. He did. He said that. And, and Paul wrote it too. I would that men, men, everywhere, pray with hands lifted up, free of wrath and anger. You have a prayer meeting. There'll be a lot of women there. It was wonderful. Filling in for the men who aren't there. Just the thing. You want to win the battle? You've got to pray. Listen, man, if you don't pray, how can you win? How can you be a spiritual leader in your home? How can you stand and deal with demonic powers that infest your home life if you don't get in the spirit and pray? We must be able to do that. If you don't know how, get along, get someone to teach you how. This coming few months, we get people up and praying strong. And then the last one is this. So, so you notice it's a two. So up here is where it counted. If you haven't got it with God, you'll lose it on the ground. If you don't maintain strong, effective prayer, engagement with God, flow of the life of the Spirit, you can't win in life. That is the message. Whenever his hands got tired and came down, whenever there was a weakening, a lessening of prayer pressure, that's when the battle went backwards. And so I like it on the ground there. Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So finally, it's the Word of God. Sword of Spirit is the Word of God. I was clear about that. So he defeated them with the sword. What does that mean? That means it requires faith. You can't get anything to shift supernaturally without faith. That means I believe what God says about me and my circumstances. I will speak and proclaim and declare what God says about me and my circumstances. Then I'll act and do what God says to do. He says, overcome evil with good. Okay, I'll overcome evil with good. Just think about that. Someone's done you evil, what's your first response? Overcome it with good. Shake your fist at them and get angry or some kind of thing like that. No, overcome evil with good. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. This is a life of faith. It's a great life that causes people to win in life. Hold the Word of God. See, today, how many of you are praying? How many of you are praying and holding God's Word over our personal life, over our family, over our marriage, over our finances, declaring, it shall be to me according to God's Word. I am blessed. There may be recession, but I am blessed. I'm a seed of Abraham. The blessings of God on my life. I'm blessed when I come in and when I go out. I'm blessed to my marriage, blessed to my family, blessed to my work. Everything I put my hand to is blessed. I am a blessing to everyone today. You've got to get it in your heart and get it in your mouth. That's what faith looks like. That's what faith talks like. That's what faith sounds like. You can always tell if someone's in faith. It looks like they're in faith. It sounds like they're in faith. And they do something that shows they're in faith. See? You can't believe and do nothing, you know. The demons do that. So join the crowd of demons. Believe and do nothing. They believe and do nothing. They can't be saved. You can't. See, faith steps out. Faith acts on what God says. So, 
On the one hand, there was strong prayer. On the other hand, there's a holding to the word, the promises, the destiny of God. No matter, you notice what it says in Joseph. Joseph had a dream. Joseph had a great destiny. But in all of it, he had to hold the word of God. When he's being sold as a slave, when he's standing naked on the, the slave block there, and they're casting bids for him. Nevertheless, it shall be done to me according to what God said to me. When he's framed and put into jail for rape, a false charge of rape, nevertheless, it shall be done to me according to the Word of God. When he's in the bottom of the prison, nevertheless, it shall be according to your Word, O God. The Bible says the Word of God tried him. Then his time came and then is out. And you know what? It was just like God said. But he held that Word over his life until his circumstance changed and aligned with what God said. Faith. 